2: 2002 is remembered as one of the most dominant seasons of the peak Michael Schumacher Ferrari era, and to many that also means it's recalled as a not very entertaining or memorable year. But it was a season that got off to an explosive start in Australia, with one of the biggest and most iconic first-corner crashes in F1 history taking place just seconds into the new season. That set the scene for a race of attrition where home hero Mark Webber scored points on his F1 debut, driving for the unfancied and by this time Australian-owned Minardi team. Meanwhile, at the front, Ferrari and Michael Schumacher came through all of the madness to take an ominous victory, comfortably defeating everyone despite not even bringing their new car to the first race of the year. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for the final regular episode of this series of Bring Back V10s are Ben Anderson and Ed Straw. Ben, you can have the opening question first. When you think of the 2002 Australian Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind?
3: Uh, it has to be the shunt. And uh, particularly uh, some infamous still images of Ralph Schumacher's Williams and seeing the bottom of it as it flies over Rubens Barrichello's Ferrari. I remember thinking the start of that season ah oh, not another not another ferrari schumacher year and for barrichello to be on pole i was thinking okay yeah this might be exciting and then of course you know ferrari getting wiped out at the first corner in melbourne normally that would be a cause for
2: celebration but it was the wrong one for me <laughs> brilliant Uh, Ed what about you then I think from what I've seen on social media people are assuming you're going to pick Minardi's day of days here I'm that predictable unfortunately yeah (laughs) unfortunately Minardi was really
1: struggling and there was a whole Australian vibe to the team and Mark Webber finally in Formula One so it was a great story although we should add Alex Young's best F1 finish in seventh and the other Minardi let's not forget that one (laughs) And I've got a soft spot for both Arrows drivers getting black flagged for different but related reasons as they tried to join the race after the first corner shunt
2: in various unacceptable ways. Yeah, I think that's a good one. If if you consider Ferrari winning the race with its old car to be a sign of doom for everybody else that year, the way Arrows managed to get both cars disqualified from this race was its own sign of doom for a team that would be dead uh, before the end of the season. Can I just make a point of order that Ed's
3: picked three moments as his standout moment from the 2002 Australian Grand Prix? (laughs) He's obviously obviously very excited for this race. I could do another seven if
2: you like. Yeah, let's not. Let's move on. Let's hear (laughs) memories from the audience, all of which probably apply to Ed as well. Thank you once again to everyone who responds to me with these on Twitter. They're great to read. The most popular choice was Weber's fifth place. Maybe that was influenced by the fact that I included a picture of the shunt. So everyone was trying to pick something different. Uh, Lone Wolf and Nero says, I've gone back to watch this and it still excites me every time. Johnny O remembers nervously hoping that Weber would hold on, but also happy to see Toyota score on their debut Chris says Weber punching the air as he crossed the line. Lewis says Weber and Paul Stoddart going up on the podium after the race, which Gavin Richardson said made Weber look and feel like the race winner. As a, a sub-genre of that, there were lots of you who chose Salo's spin with two laps to go uh, while battling Weber. So thanks to Clay Halford, Matthew Walker, Greg Ankers and Justin for those. Obviously, we did have plenty of mentions for the crash at the start. Uh, Andrew Bowen says Ralph Schumacher drank some Red Bull to give his Williams wings. Colin Mills said seeing the floor of the Williams was uh, the main memory, as Ben mentioned. Paul Stubbs says Ralph trying to fly home. Uh, Daniel Waters says this was the first race I watched and the memory of Ralph going over the back of Barrichello will never leave me. James Llewellyn and C.K. Ott mentioned David Coulthard going off from the lead just before a safety car restart. A few of you, like Ed, uh, chose both Arrows drivers failing to get off the grid. Um, That's only getting a passing mention later on, so it's worth a shout here. Uh, Andrew Sillett says, poor old Arrows. Christopher Foxen remembers that they were both excluded when they rejoined the race, and Ben McShane gave it a mention too. Uh, And I I liked this. We had a a reasonable number of replies from people who were there that weekend in Melbourne, uh, including old school F1 stuff, Luke Battiston, Simon Gregory and Michael D who it would appear from the picture and what Michael said was a marshal at the first corner that day and says I think of me carrying away Ralph's front wing and various other debris and uh, as I said there's a picture of uh, of Michael carrying those parts so that's very cool. As I mentioned this is our final regular episode of the series so we have two more special episodes to come Uh, One of those will involve taking your questions about the V10 era. So make sure you get those in using the hashtag bringbackv10s on Twitter or email them to bringbackv10s at the-race.com. That inbox is filling up nicely now. Lots of variety in there. If you're part of the race members club, not only do you get early access to every episode of Bring Back V10s and you can listen ad free, but after the series, you will get an exclusive chance to submit your questions for a members only ask us anything episode. So to find out more and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And if you're looking for another way to share your love of F1's V10 era, then we'd love to have you join our new Twitter community. As we record this, there are over 400 people in that group now. It's free to join. All you have to do is go to the Communities button on your Twitter app or in the browser and search for Bring Back V10s and you'll find a place to discuss our episodes, but also just share memories of this time in F1. Now one of the big talking points heading into the new season was the fact that Ferrari would be starting the year with its old car, the F2001. Ferrari explained that it wasn't convinced about the reliability of its 2002 car, so it decided to play safe to make sure it could bank points by finishing the early races. Ross Braun added that the team had identified some key development areas it also wanted to pursue further on the car, and it wasn't possible to have that work done in time for the first race. Michael Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello backed the decision, saying it wasn't worth the risk of bringing the F2002. And Schumacher said he hoped to score three or four points, which under the old top six point system of which this was the last year, that meant he was aiming to finish third or fourth. Um, this news raised hopes for Ferrari's pursuers, with Williams's Juan Pablo Montoya saying, if we came here with last year's car, we'd end up 10th. Uh, And he felt Ferrari was just covering for the fact that they didn't get their new car ready in time. But he expected the F2001 to be quick enough to be competitive. Ben, early in the V10 era, you know, at the turn of the 80s into the 90s, we did see quite a few teams, including big teams, do this. But by the start of the 21st century, this wasn't happening anymore. So did it feel like a big deal that Ferrari, a team as big as Ferrari, was starting the year with an old car?
3: Yeah, it did. I I think at the time it got everyone's hopes up, you know, that you feel like Ferrari, you know, having become so mighty in the recent past has kind of dropped the ball or, you know, they're behind the curve. Um, could this be this, this opportunity to break the kind of Michael Schumacher run, uh, and unfortunately it didn't turn out that way. Um, it was quite sad for me as a fan at the time, um. But I suppose it wasn't really that uncommon, taken in a kind of bigger view. McLaren did something similar the following season, but it tended to be them reacting to a problem by this point in Formula 1 history. You know, in in Ferrari's case for this season, oh, we've got some quite clever developments we're not sure about, we want to prove the reliability. They were doing clever things with the gearbox by this stage and they wanted to do stuff with exhaust blowing. They wanted to lighten the car. I mean, you know, that's something that still applies now in Formula 1 quite seriously, um, so it tended to be a kind of prudent move um, and one born out of necessity rather than in the early um, period of this era where you were just saying, you know, like in McLaren's case, for example, oh, this car's just so good. We, let's just keep going with it um, while we try and think of something better. It also
1: tells you something about Ferrari at this time, doesn't it? Because it'd be very easy to think, oh, the media won't like this, the Italian media will go after us because the car existed, why isn't it running? Oh, you must have got something badly wrong. But they were sure-footed, they thought, no, this is the right, sensible, pragmatic decision, we'll do it, I don't care what they think. And I think that's just a little vignette that tells you why that team was so successful in this period.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. The F2002 was logging plenty of miles in testing. It wasn't like we hadn't seen it yet. Another piece of news that affected the battle at the front was Michelin's decision not to bring a new tyre with asymmetric grooves to Melbourne for the season opener. These were tyres where the grooves sloped more gradually on one side than the other. But the FIA and Bridgestone were adamant this wasn't legal, saying it contravened the rule that said the grooves had to be uniform. Michelin tried to contest that uniform did not mean symmetrical, but FIA president Max Mosley said the governing body's view was that uniform meant they have to be the same whichever way you look at them. In the end, Michelin's F1 tyre manager Pascal Vassilon said it chose not to take them to Australia because it didn't want to risk all of its teams being disqualified. Ed, you like a bit of a uh, pedantry and arguing over meanings of wording and that sort of thing so this feels up your street was this a clever interpretation by michelin or were they clutching at edge straws trying to claim that uniform did not mean what everyone else thought it did well i thought i'd go and dig
1: out the regulations from the time times i thought this could be quite interesting a nice semantic argument but i've got no idea why michelin contended this because <laughs> yeah, you can say uniform doesn't cover that but the sporting regulations did also state directly above the line where that requirement to taper uniformly is mentioned that tyres, and I quote, must incorporate four grooves which are, which are arranged symmetrically about the centre of the tyre tread. So they do need to be symmetrical. Uniform might not mean symmetrical, but symmetrical sure does. And <laughs> that's based on the centre of the tyre. So if they sloped away, as is described, then they wouldn't be symmetrical. So I don't really understand this. I do wonder whether there was some separate tyre spec that Michelin was referencing and they didn't look because oddly this is in the sporting regs so it seems really really odd the fact that they didn't run them and the fact that this was pretty much never heard of again and the regs weren't even modified because I checked the 20 uh, the 2003 regs and the 2002 and the 2001 all identical in this regard so I'm not sure what Michelin was doing here unless they were just trying to prove a point and close something off it's it's very
3: very baffling though there, there was no argument to be had yeah, I considered this just to be a, a piece of good old fashioned uh, F1 clarification being sought. So we challenged the regs to make sure we all know what we're working towards. But then as Ed describes it, actually, there's no clarification needed. So it feels like Michelin got a certain way down the road and then somebody noticed, oh, we haven't we haven't read the right bit of the paperwork. So now we need to backtrack as
2: quickly as we can. Yeah, we'd like to seek clarification. No need. You've just misread the rule. <laughs> But uh, no other podcast out there is going to go back, uh, as Ed has done, and go and read through three different sets of sporting regulations for you. That is what Bring Back v 10 is all about. One of the big changes on the grid for 2002 was the arrival of David Richards to take over at BAR, which had endured a rough three years without much success to show for all the money being spent by British American Tobacco and now Honda. Richards explained that he and his, at the time, he said, he and his people from ProDrive were spending their first 90 days in charge, assessing what needed to change at the team, and then he would start taking action. He said he was very much hands-on at this stage, but that wasn't his usual style, so eventually he wanted to put the right people in place to help the team run more effectively. Richards mentioned this 90-day period specifically when, reflecting on his arrival at B.A.R., with Motorsport Magazine in 2007. I think he mentioned it on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast as well. He said, We went in and gave ourselves 90 days to appraise everything. We were set three very clear objectives by BAT. First, they wanted us to stop the business hemorrhaging money. They'd never had a stable budget and they were constantly being asked to invest more. Second, they wanted some results in return for that investment. And third, with tobacco advertising now doomed, they wanted to sell the business. Ben, do you think Richards was a shrewd appointment at BAR? And what do you make of this sort of 90-day taking stock approach? Was that a good move? Because I see that and I think, well, in F1, you're always under constant pressure to to win now and do everything immediately. But what do you think of DR managing to get himself a kind of grace period to to take it all in?
3: Yeah, good move from him, I think. Um, probably helped by the fact that you're kind of on the dawn of the season um you know it's a late change it's not like he's had the whole winter or even the end of the previous season to kind of come in and and do that work so he's sensible to argue to his paymasters, give me some time to actually review this thing and work out where the problems are and then how i can fix it in hindsight it's easy to say that you know he was a shrewd appointment because the team became more successful they got closer to honda button came on board they had a really good run in 2004 um you know, not really challenging for him, but at least having much more success in the World Championship than they'd had any time previously. But looking at the move at the time, you know, Richard's very versatile, very successful, shrewd motorsport operator. And it did feel like that team needed the shakeup and the political shake-up of pulling it out of the, the pollock Villeneuve orbit. It was a kind of very weird structure, a lot of driver power in there. And I feel like that, that's a main piece of work that, as I'm sure we'll get onto, Richards had to do when he first first got his uh, feet under the table.
2: Yeah, we'll come on to the driver power, should we? Because uh, one man who wasn't happy to see Richards arrive at the team was its lead driver Jack Villeneuve. The two never really saw eye to eye, and Richards' arrival meant Villeneuve's days at the team were numbered. Reflecting on this period in a 2005 interview with F1 Racing magazine, Villeneuve said, What really destroyed BAR was when Richards arrived and had a private battle with Craig Pollock. After that, Richards decided that I was part of the Craig situation and started hating me for no good reason. He was on a mission to destroy everything I'd ever achieved And I think that was damaging for the team as well as myself." He went on to say that team bosses make or break a driver, and he said Richard's treatment of him was damaging for Jacques' career. Villeneuve went back to this well with the same magazine in 2014, saying that once his manager, Craig Pollock, was ousted at the head of the team, Jack's protection was gone, and within three months, Honda had turned their back on him as well. He said he was the black sheep, and while he never said anything critical in public at the time, he couldn't fight back inside the team, and he also said this period was the lowest point of his career. Um, Ed, it will forever bother me and Jack, I'd imagine, that BAR came really good straight after he left. We've talked about that on some 2004 episodes in the past. Given what happened after he was gone, is there anything we can agree with him on regarding David Richards' arrival being bad for BAR? Well, certainly DR's
1: arrival was good for BAR, but I've got some sympathy for Villeneuve because it was bad for him. And he was so closely allied with Craig Pollock, and such a strong character, I can understand why he didn't feel his face fit there, because it couldn't really. So I don't really agree with Villeneuve's analysis. In, in many areas, but I get where it comes from. It's a little bit like that situation with the groove tyres we talked about on the Imola 97 episode, and I see where it's coming from. I don't think he's expressed it quite right, but I completely get it. That team was set up around him. It was Pollock and him, and it's all being taken away from him. And at times, I feel i like performed very, very well for that team. So, yeah, I think it was always going to be that way. This sort of thing always happens. If you've got someone who's closely connected with that old regime, you're always at risk of being... Ousted with it eventually. And if you're Jacques Villeneuve and you're not necessarily the most diplomatic character, then you're doubly at risk. Yeah, I think you're right.
2: Bad for Villeneuve, not so bad for BAR. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going
3: on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us.
2: Now we're going to get into a topic that could easily warrant an episode all of its own. So we're going to be here a while, but trust me, it'll be worth it. In January of 2002, Alain Prost's team, Prost Grand Prix, was liquidated by the French courts, having been in administration since November 2001. The judge who made this decision, uh, a guy called Frank Michel, said uh, there was interest in the team, but he said the problem was the only people showing interest were short-term investors who were able to show they could put up a lot of money up front, but with little evidence there was a real company behind the money. Prost himself declared, uh, described it as a relief at the time that his ordeal as a team owner was finally over. And on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast years later, he said he was really happy when it all ended. Ed, how did you feel to see the Prost team go under? Was this a big loss to F1? Yeah, I think it was a big loss. And there hasn't been a, a proper,
1: real all-French team since, by which I mean one completely based in France. And blue. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And Prost slash Liger were so French, weren't they, in a, in a great way. And it had a long history, stretched all the way back to 1976. Okay, front-loaded the success pretty much into the first half-dozen years. But everyone loved the idea of Alan Prost being a success as a team boss. As I seem to mention every episode of Bring Back V10s, the all-French super team built around Prost went back a long way in this era. and was coming for such a long time. So it's a shame that something sounded that sounded so great turned out so bad. However... That's all the the kind of intangible from the heart stuff. But if you look at what the team actually achieved, it it was less of a loss. Aside from that pretty good 97 season, assisted by being on the Bridgestone rubber, the results were pretty dreadful. You're basically talking a handful of sixth places, a fifth place, and that Yarno Trulli P2 in the Nürburgring in 1999. And Peugeot pulled out. And I think at that point, the writing was on the wall. Loads of problems. I don't think Alan Prost was really cut out for the day-to-day management of a F1 team. And that relief (laughs) sort of suggests that he probably wasn't as well. He also referred to it as a total failure for France. So uh, it's clear how he thought it was. I think Prost probably took for granted that he'd have all that support. And as he mentioned, the Renault thing slightly changed that. So, yeah. So from the heart, a real loss. But you only get to stay in F1 if you're any good. And the team under him ultimately was not very good.
2: Yeah, Prost's only good season was... When they were ligier it was you know they took over Ligier on the eve of the season we've discussed it. we've done an episode on that uh that year and everything that went on the moment they started doing it all themselves with peugeot engines uh it went rubbish so <laughs> what happened uh we'll try and do a short version here i think the prost peugeot years so 98 to 2000 will be an episode at some point um that prost has always said Uh, He was made promises by the French government and major French companies when he bought Ligier in 1997. And then we did discuss this in our 97 episode. He realized on the eve of that deal being official that those promises were not going to be kept. And he wanted to back out then. Then after signing several major sponsorship deals over the first few years of owning the team and even selling a stake to online giant Yahoo!, Uh, What Prost always calls the internet crisis struck and all of his sponsors disappeared, as did engine supplier Peugeot at the end of 2000. After struggling on with little funding and an expensive Ferrari engine in 2001, Prost says he had agreed to sell the team to Saudi Prince Al-Wahid just before the 9-11 attacks in America and then that deal fell through. He said the Ferrari engine deal was set to get even more expensive for 2002, rising from $28 million to $31 million. And he said he never had a budget bigger than $40 million. So it was impossible to run a team on less than $10 million spare cash after your engine deal. He also said, as Ed mentioned... That Renault's return to F1, buying Benetton in 2001, meant the end of the support for Prost Grand Prix in France, as Renault now courted all of the national attention. On Beyond the Grid, he summed it up as not working for reasons that I did not anticipate before, which he said was very frustrating. Prost picked up some criticism at the time, though. His former sporting director, John Walton, was quoted by The Sun as saying, the reason the team folded was because Prost wanted to keep total control. Walton said, the people who could have saved us wanted him to step down, but that was never his plan, even if it meant the team going to the wall. So Ben, as I said, that was the short version. A lot of ground covered. A lot of bits missed out that we'll do another time. But based on that summary was this team doomed from the moment Prost took Ligier over was there any way the the kind of disastrous few years that it had could have been salvaged
3: oh it seems very difficult doesn't it I mean coming into that project knowing then the rules are going to fundamentally change so drastically from 97 to 98 that can't help you know you essentially need two groups working on that to get you through the first season they did reasonably well as like you said, a Ligier team effectively still with the Bug and Hondas. They didn't hit the ground running. Peugeot obviously was a massive part of why that project never worked. You know, it's meant to be an all French works operation, but Peugeot were never really, I don't think that committed and didn't really do a proper job. And as Prost says in his Beyond the Grid interview, he was effectively paying Peugeot as well. So, you know, that's, that's ham, hamstringing him. Um, He blames socialism as well within France, you know, um, workers paid too much and and having too much power. I found that comparison with Ron Dennis's McLaren really interesting so that, you know, by Prost's calculation, for the same money, he could employ, employ only a third of the people that McLaren were employing. So either the whole French system is against Alain Prost or Ron Dennis is a massive skin flint and all the people at McLaren should have been paid a lot more. And then he gets unlucky with the dot-com bubble bursting at the wrong time. Then he gets unlucky with, you know, selling, trying to sell to a Saudi just before 9-11. So Prost is basically the unluckiest team owner in Formula One um, by his own account. I feel like the only way it works is if somehow he gets Renault on board. And because, you know, during this period, obviously Renault have stopped supplying engines to Williams and, and Benetton, and then they're coming back on the scene and they're about to build the Renault Works team again. If that could have been Prost, then it's probably got a future, but it didn't happen. And obviously everything that happened while Prost was in charge, it was so disastrous, basically. You can see why no one wanted to touch it. And you could also see why the people who did want to touch it would then want Prost to cede some control. And you can also see why Prost would not want to give up that when he's had to basically endure all the pain and have none of the rewards. So I think, you know, as was said, just for everybody's well-being, it was best that it just died a death. Even though I agree with Ed, it was a sad thing because, you know, the Ligier team as it was, was such a, you know, iconic part of Formula One, very successful. And even in the later days before it transformed into Prost, it was a bit of a giant killer It sort of played that, you know, modern F1 Force India role, really. So it was a shame that 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 team, yeah, fell from existence.
2: Yeah, and I don't think we'll see that sort of thing again. One of the funny things about 97 was obviously we had two world champions sort of taking over or setting up teams. You had Alan Prost and Jackie Stewart joining the grid as team owners. You just, you can't imagine, sort of 25 years later, you can't imagine that ever happening again. But there were more... Twists to come in this story. As we've outlined there, the team was shut down in January, yet by the end of February, by which point the F1 World was in Melbourne for the first race, news broke that buyers had been found for the team and Arrows boss Tom Walkinshaw's TWR operation would be providing technical support to get them back on the grid as soon as possible. Walkinshaw told Reuters that he was not involved with the owners, but that TWR would be contracted to provide engineering support. He also said that Minardi made an offer to buy the team. Minardi boss Paul Stoddart then came out and said that was true. But he also said it was Walkinshaw who had bought Prost's assets on the cheap for just a couple of million dollars, weeks after offers between 30 and 60 million dollars for the whole team had been rejected by the French courts. Stoddart said his bid had been nothing more than an an attempt to disrupt what Walkinshaw was doing, as he felt any attempt to revive Prost on the cheap was against F1's Concord agreement and also diminished the value of all the other teams on the grid. Because if someone could potentially buy the assets of a team for very little, then suddenly get involved. Stoddart thought that was a disaster. I think he said at one point that you've just wiped 300 million off the value of this pit lane and 300 million probably wouldn't get you an F1 team today. Um, Stoddart said when he spoke to Walkinshaw about this in Australia, Tom told him to back off. Walkinshaw claimed that Prost's place on the grid being reclaimed actually protected the value of all the other teams as it meant all 12 slots on the F1 grid were full so someone could only get in by buying an existing one. He also continued to deny being the buyer of the team, accusing Stollart of making crazy comments and shooting his mouth off, which was leading people to speculate on a whole load of stuff they know nothing about. Stollart said he would take legal action to stop whoever the Prost buyer was joining the grid, and Walkinshaw basically shrugged his shoulders and said, let him do it. Ed, before we reveal who the buyer was and get into all of that, what did you make of of all this? You know, this was happening kind of... Thursday and Friday of the Australian GP weekend, was Stoddart right to take up this position to block someone trying to buy up some Prost assets on the cheap just to get into F1?
1: Yeah, I get why he was doing it, because there were pretty serious financial implications and the arguments he made were fundamentally right. I'm not entirely sure he really helped the situation by piling in and putting in bids and trying to block it in that way because I think that just escalated things a little bit but it certainly got a lot of attention which I think was perhaps the objective I mean Stoddart said he he never intended to get the assets really it was just there to try and be a bit of a, a spoiler and yeah the whole situation as he characterized it was very wrong I know we're getting to this a little bit more in a moment but the key thing is they hadn't bought the team they bought a few bits of the team they not even bought all of it or taken on the employees so it was very, very much not about some ambitious attempt to create a Grand Prix team. Let's be very clear about that. So that's why Stoddart was right to do that. Plus, of course, he thought he could get some of the, uh, I think it was $12 million that Prosper owed. And it's not entirely clear whether that would have worked, but there was some pure self-interest there protecting the value of Grand Prix teams and just that this really wasn't on. And Stoddart probably thought, because this is this was his role in F1 at the time. He was there to vocally fight for the little guy because he was the little guy in a manufacturer world, really. So, or at least a manufacturer and big team affiliated with manufacturer world. So I think that's why he was getting quite punchy about it with some justification. Perhaps not the most delicate way of doing it, another Villeneuve situation, but entirely understandable and
2: justifiable. Yeah, Paul Stoddart and Delicate don't really go together, do they? Uh, so who was the buyer then? It was revealed to be a British businessman called Charles Nickerson through his company Phoenix Finance. And from this point on, the project became known as as the Phoenix team. You've probably heard that even if you don't know this story. And uh, Nickerson just happened to be a longtime friend and business partner of Tom Walkinshaw. But uh, all he'd bought was the intellectual property to the 2001 and 2002 Prost chassis designs a limited amount of 2002 parts that had been made before the team closed. Prost's rights related to the Concorde agreement, which I think is what got Paul Stoddart interested, and he'd also been able to hire the team's 2001 AP04 cars for the season. Phoenix didn't buy the Prost name or its facilities in France, and it was expected to set up close to Arrows' base in the UK. The team was aiming to be on the grid for the second round of the season in Malaysia. With former Prost drivers Gaston Mazzucani and Thomas Enger rumoured rumored to be its driver lineup, a spokeswoman for Prost said what Nicholson had done was within French law and that the sale involved Prost's right to compete in the World Championship. However, F1 Supremo Bernie Eccleston said Nicholson had bought nothing in Formula One. All he has bought is some show-off cars and Bernie said he was wasting his time thinking he could race in Malaysia. FIA President Max Mosley initially kept his cards close to his chest, easy for me to say, saying he was awaiting official communication from whoever had bought the assets. But in Max's view, they appear to have major difficulties if they want to join the grid. And the FAA later firmed up this stance, saying the new team could not join the grid in 2002 because entries closed back in November, so they could apply to come into F1 for 2003 if they were willing to pay the required bond to guarantee a place on the grid as a new team. <laughs> ben, I think I know the answer to this one, but did F1 make the right decision here? Can you... Well, <laughs> maybe I should change that. Can you make any case for this project being allowed to race in 2002? Uh, they allows. St- Thomas Enger to race in F one, they allow
3: oh, uh, Gaston Mazzacane's career to <laughs> to, uh, to, limp t- to limp on. Um, I think it's it's very difficult to make a, a case here. Um, there's com- there's parallels you can draw with you know kind of current F one and and letting Andretti's proposed entry in, or you know um, interested parties who have come in and bought assets or teams when they've been in trouble, you know, thinking of Lawrence Stroll and, and Force India turning it into Racing Point and then Aston, or what Dietrich Mateschitz did with Jaguar and Minardi and having two teams, which seems a bit sort of what Walkinshaw is angling for, by having Arrows and then his mate's team running these these prosts that they've acquired. It's a but, bit of a budget version but it's a, of
2: what Red Bulls did. Isn't it's it it? very
3: budget, yeah. And I think that's the problem because they haven't gone about it in a way that would be considered proper and got buy-in from enough of the existing stakeholders, which is vital. You know, Andretti having such problems because they've been noisy and they've antagonised the existing players. It's making it much harder for them to to fight their way in. Obviously, what Stroll did and what Mataschitz did, they took the whole thing. You know, he Renardi became Toro Rosso. It's still located in Faenza. It protects the kind of integrity of the original operation rather than just trying to pick the best bits. You know, um, John Barnard, whose consultancy worked on the Prost, was owed money from this liquidation and was saying, oh, this, you know, this chassis was the best one they had done. This is the the best car. So you can see why, you know, Wilkinshaw and his mate wanted a piece of that, but it's not enough to say, all right, we're just going to, we're just going to buy the good bit we're going to we're going to get your concord agreement bit so we get paid and then screw the facility screw all the people screw everything else not only is that a bad look it's bound to antagonize all the people who've poured millions into formula 1 to build their operations it was never going to get off the ground so ultimately if they if they'd gone about it in a more proper and whole way they might have had a chance but as it was i think no chance at all Plus,
1: I don't think they were that serious about actually properly competing. I think there were financial motivations. And as Glenn mentioned, uh, Charles Nicholson, uh, Charles Nicholson was a longtime business associate, associate of Tom Walkinshaw. But- fans of Tintop racing in the 80s might remember Chuck Nicholson, who shared TWR machinery with Tom Walkinshaw, among others, who is the same guy, just racing under a slight pseudonym. So he's got a very long association with Tom Walkinshaw. And yeah, this whole thing was was very much connected to, to TWR. It wasn't even vaguely removed. I think it was an attempt to circumvent some Concord legalities, clearly. I don't know the exact phrasing, but that's what it was all about. And in the end, yeah, it just was never going to happen. And as a, a little side note, if you go through the company's house documentation about uh, about Phoenix, which was named Dark Grand Prix for two weeks, uh, from February the 28th to March the 13th of that year. But if you look in September, uh, Nichols, uh, Nickerson, I keep getting him in a pseudonym, Nickerson stands down as a director and Arrow's Grand Prix International becomes a director because other corporate bodies can become a director. So all of that stuff just sort of gets subsumed into TWR. So that's, if anyone's suspicious about how serious this was and what it was, it wasn't, I don't think this was TWR trying to help a business associate do a team. It, it was very much Walkinshaw getting involved and, and trying to do something.
2: Yeah. Uh, murky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, but... Um, on those APO4 chassis that uh, that he hired for a year, um, it may surprise you to know I've driven one of those cars because um, Renault took those cars on and turned them into ones that very rich people could pay to drive as part of a, a, a drive, idiots drive racing cars experience type thing. And I got to do it for work and I, I was talking to the mechanics afterwards and I was looking at it going... I can't work out which old Renault or Benetton this is. And I said to the mechanics, what is this? He went, oh, it's the the last Prost that ran. And then suddenly I was like, oh, I can see it It is. It is. That is a Prost. Are you revealing your secret identity as Gaston Mazzucane? Uh, I wish I had his financial backing.
3: I think you're also revealing that the Renault-Prost tie-up did eventually happen, just far (laughs) too late for for Alain Prost.
2: Yeah, so (laughs) after Arrows and TWR... Uh, Stop trying to get their tentacles into this project. Clearly, Renault did hoover it up. And uh, finally, um, Alain Prost's F1 DNA got the French support it always craved. Um, Off the back of the collapse of Prost, Max Mosley had come up with a a raft of cost-cutting measures he wanted to implement. These were revealed in Autosport magazine a couple of weeks before the season started. Mosley's plans were to limit each car to only use one engine per weekend uh, with a 12 place grid penalty for an engine change or using the spare car because spare cars were still a thing back then max wanted manufacturers of which f1 had plenty at the time to be forced to supply a second team with an affordable engine so not that 30 million nonsense that took Prost down and he wanted weekends cut to two days of track action we still hear that suggestion today don't we Mosley wrote a letter to all of the existing teams saying that there was a real threat to F1 and its teams and engine suppliers, but that a relatively straightforward solution exists. In his book years later, Mosley said that by 2002, the cost of competing in F1 was prohibitively and perilously expensive. And while he felt safety was the biggest threat to F1's existence in the 1990s, it was now the inordinate cost that was most likely to destroy the World Championship. Reaction from the teams was mixed, as you might expect. The smaller independent teams like Minardi, Arrows and Jordan were very vocal in their support, while the big teams, who were either owned or supported by manufacturers, were much more careful in saying that they agreed costs needed to be reduced, but they weren't sure Mosley's suggestions focusing on engines were the best way to do that. Ed, was Mosley right that things were getting out of control or, or was this perhaps an overreaction
1: to Prost going out of business? Well, there's always this soul searching and panic when a team goes under, but fundamentally he was right. This was a point where manufacturers were flooding in. We should also note that while that also squeezed the min- the Minnow teams, the independent teams, the likes of Minardi, Prost, Arrows, which was, was struggling, it was also in Mosey's interest to have a good bedrock of independence because obviously the story of the coming decade was really manufacturers against FIA pretty much in terms of the potential breakaway etc so there were a lot of political dimensions uh, to this and yeah that push and pull pretty much defined the first decade of the 21st century and he was right that some solutions needed to be introduced and there was eventually kind of a version of the engine supply because there was a an agreement much much later to limit the cost of customer engines which was a sensible move but fundamentally he was right because f1 was changing dramatically becoming completely reliant on manufacturer money and what is manufacturer money in motorsport it's very very capricious so correct even though he wanted to underscore his position and consolidate and have plenty of minnows that he could lean on he was also absolutely correct
3: yeah and also those minnow teams i mean minardi arrows they were soon to bite the dust. You know, Jordan definitely peaked by this point. And was starting its downslide, and if you look at some of the things Mosley was proposing, I mean, eventually Formula One got on board because that engine rule and the grid penalties that applied from the mid two thousands and it it kind of undid Kimi Räikkönen's title bid with McLaren, didn't it? So this era of Formula One where the manufacturers are taking over was always going to lead to this kind of boom and then bust. And Formula One had to find ways, and Mosley particularly had to find ways to mitigate that, I think.
2: Let's get into the race weekend then. Uh, The 2001 Ferraris had locked out the front row of the grid, but at the start, Ralph Schumacher's Williams got between them. Then in the braking zone for the first corner, Ralph vaulted over the back of Barrichello's Ferrari, Flying into the air while behind them, chaos broke out as everyone reacted or perhaps I should say overreacted to the dramatic accident at the front. In total, eight cars were eliminated here, but we'll focus on the initial collision first. Ralph said Barrichello changed direction too many times on the run to the first corner and then braked early. Although he did say that uh, Ralph did say as the leader, Rubens was entitled to brake cautiously to make sure he made the corner. But Ralph added, I'm sure he didn't do it on purpose. He just tried to defend his position without thinking what he was doing. Barrichello blamed Ralph, surprise, surprise, saying, if I wasn't there, he wouldn't have made the corner. Rubens said it was silly because Ralph had already gained a place at the start. And he said if Ralph wanted to overtake him, he should have moved wider because Barrichello didn't get in his way. Ben, analyse this shunt for us. Was one driver more at fault than the other?
3: Yeah, I think... Uh, I mostly lay blame at Barrichello's door on this one. You know, he goes zigzaggy from pole position. He's trying to defend, obviously, the lead. He's on the inside line, the less grippy side of the track. It's a cold weekend in Melbourne. Cars are not working that well. Tyres are not up to temperature. Ralph makes a great start and is really minding his own business on that line. I don't think he's, you know, he needs to go much wider than he is, he's able to go into the corner quicker because he's on closer to the racing line. Barrichello just shows that lack of awareness at the final moment and and moves left to try and open up the corner without realising that Schumacher's start has been as good as it was and just drives into his path. Like Schumacher has no opportunity to react at that moment. Um, so I just think, yeah, Barrichello... Should have stuck to the line he was on, and he just made one move too many. I was surprised actually that Ralph was so sanguine about it. Um, he could have, I think, if it had been his brother, obviously that he and Barrichello were teammates, so it never would have happened. But if Michael Schumacher had not been racing for, for Ferrari and had been in Ralph's position, I think he would have been very harsh on on Barrichello after that inci- after that incident.
2: Yeah, I, I thought this is really poor from Barrichello. He's all over the road. I, I think you could argue he possibly moves three times in that start sequence. The uh, F1 TV has the live broadcast from the time of this race and they show so many replays, so many angles. You get a real feel for it from everyone's perspective. High cameras, low cameras. And the more replays you watch from more angles, you you build quite a compelling case, I think, that it's Barrichello's fault. Uh, So what on earth happened behind them? Because obviously this is two cars colliding. Ralph disappears in midair into the runoff straight on Barrichello's out how did six more cars end up being taken out let's let's work it out for you Jensen Button and Giancarlo Fisichella pay- pinned the blame on Sauber's Nick Heidfeld Button said he saw Heidfeld head straight down the grass on the inside, approaching the first corner, taking three or four cars out in the process. Fissy Keller said he was hit by Heidfeld, who hadn't slowed down and had gone off and lost control of his car. Heidfeld, in fairness, held his hands up afterwards, saying, I think I did cause an accident. He said he saw the crash at the front and tried to stay to the inside to avoid getting involved, but he couldn't avoid getting caught up in an accident of his own. Um, there is an overhead angle of this crash where you can just about see Heidfeld, Olivier Panis, and Alan McNish all take to the grass on the inside of turn one, lose control on that grass because it was wet, and then spin into other cars as they rejoin the track. Panis said he was pushed onto the grass. No, I can't see evidence of that. Uh, McNish says Panis spun onto the grass um, and that he ended up there as well, just trying to avoid everything. And McNish actually tags. His teammate, his Toyota teammate, Mikasalo as well. Ed, uh what did you think, though, of these secondary accidents that, you know, th- these are the guys that turned this into a massive pile up rather than just a two car incident at the front? Were they overreacting or is it understandable that they saw what was going on ahead and just kind of drove onto the grass and then all hell broke loose? Yeah, it's very easy to sit on the outside and say, yeah, they overreacted
1: or whatever, but it's never that simple. You see a bit of a concertina effect. In Heifeld's case, he does hit the brakes, but that's because Fizzy hits the brakes ahead of him, who's braking a bit harder than there's cars ahead of him, there's cars flying. <laughs> so there's a lot of people reacting. And the further back you are, the more you have to react to other people's reactions, if you see what I mean. So I. Yeah, Heidfeld could have done something else, but all you're trying to do at that point when there's stuff happening, there's a lot of things going on. You don't, you don't really know exactly where all the cars are, who's up in the air, who's not. You just see there's a big crash going on and there's smoke everywhere. So with that limited view, you take instant action. You commit to what seems like the least worst course of action. And yeah, you can say Heidfeld could have done this, but put yourself in his position with limited visibility <laughs> What he did, I don't think was unreasonable. And I think it's just down to the configuration of that corner in particular that, that played a part in that. None of them triggered the accident. It was triggered elsewhere. So yeah, I don't have a big problem with that. I think all three of us have been at much, much, much lower levels in racing in situations where you're just trying to react to something happening in front of you. and All you can do is just make the best choice based on limited information. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be too aggressive in criticism of, of anybody there.
2: All of the drivers involved ran back to the pits, expecting the race to be red flagged, but it wasn't. Instead, the safety car was sent out to pick up the remaining 12 cars, plus the two Arrows drivers, who, as we mentioned at the start, uh, they would be excluded um, because their cars failed on the grid. And Hightseld-Frentzen then rejoined the race when there was a red light at the end of the pit lane. And Enrique Bernoldi was sent out in the spare car, which wasn't allowed because the race hadn't been stopped. So good work, Arrows. Uh, Some people weren't impressed that the race wasn't stopped, though. The most vocal were down at Jordan, where the race's very own Gary Anderson said it was absurd, and his driver, Fissy Keller, called it ridiculous. Michael Schumacher said he felt it should have been red flagged, while David Coulthard, who led the race after all of this, said it wasn't good to deprive the fans of so many cars, but he added, this isn't Hollywood, and you don't just cut out the bits you don't like. Ralph Schumacher... Uh, continued to be a voice of reason in in all of this Uh, he explained it the most clearly he said race director charlie whiting had told the drivers he wouldn't stop races for first corner accidents unless absolutely necessary which i think means track two blocked debris everywhere maybe an injury because charlie wanted to force the drivers to take more care at the starts And on that subject, uh, Michael Schumacher called for everyone to be a little more calm at the start of the season to avoid incidents like this. What did you think, Ed? Should this have been red flagged so we could get as many cars back on the grid as
1: possible? Uh, No, I wouldn't say for that reason. The defining question is whether it needs a red flag, not how many cars are out. If you want to change the rules and say that you restart if X number of cars are out, fine. But that's not a good enough justification. I would say, looking at it, you could probably make a reasonable case, given how many cars are around bits of carbon fibre, etc., the risk of punctures. That said, it only took them, I think they had five laps under the safety car. So, yeah, it wasn't an unreasonable decision, especially with that backdrop of them wanting to make sure drivers are a little bit more careful, although it didn't really help in this particular case. So maybe it was a lesson for them. But, yeah, it needs to be a safety-driven thing. I think probably today that would be red flagged to allow the cleanup to be properly done and not leave any concerns about bits and pieces
3: on the track. Do you think, because looking at it, uh, most of the debris seemed to be offline. You know, it ended up to the left of the track as you go through turn one. So to my mind, there was enough of a clean bit of track that everyone could get through. And then the safety car does the job. So when when you add that into the fact that Charlie Whiting is trying to make a point as well and get Formula One drivers to clean up their act. I mean, it shows how little the drivers paid attention to Michael Schumacher because his appeal for calm is not met at all by pretty much anyone uh, at that, on that first lap. I felt like the safety car did the job there. And I remember at the time also, I liked this idea of they had only had the one shot. So if everyone misbehaves or there's chaos on the first lap and loads of cars are taken out i like that i wanted them out of the race because it meant then you had the chance of these minnows or the people surviving the chaos to come through and get amazing results and of course we wouldn't have had the Weber result or anything like it if it wasn't for this decision
1: yeah i'm not necessarily saying they they should have done merely they could have done i think The comparison I made with today is because you never know exactly where all the debris is. It only takes a little bit, doesn't it? So that's why I maybe wondered whether it was necessary to do it. That's the only argument for having a red flag, I think, in, in this situation. So, yeah, but you're absolutely right. It wasn't a problem. So by definition, it wasn't a problem that they carried on. And, yeah, it's great to have the cars eliminated because we might not be talking about this right now in this episode we'd be talking about something else completely different and this might be one of those races that was considered really dull who knows
2: yeah that's a good point it wouldn't be as memorable I think if it had been restarted so on the restart from the safety car Coulthard's in the lead with Jano Trilli's Renault defending second place uh, from Schumacher's Ferrari once Schumacher deals with Montoya uh, here I believe After the race, Schumacher said Trulli's defensive driving here in a slower car didn't seem to be appropriate and Michael questioned if Trulli was driving fairly. That led to a strong response from Renault technical director Mike Gascoigne, who told the BBC Schumacher's comments were pathetic and inappropriate, saying everybody wants to see racing and it was up to Schumacher to find a way through as he was the man in the quicker car. Ben, did Schumacher have a point here about Trulli's defensive driving? No. No, I'm
3: with Gascoigne on this one. Um, Also, I think it's quite hilarious that Michael Schumacher is questioning whether somebody else's driving (laughs) is appropriate or fair. Um, Nothing to see here. You know, Trulli doesn't really change direction, doesn't do anything that Max Verstappen later made popular in Formula 1 approaching the braking zones or even in the braking zones. I think Schumacher's just faffing around a bit, trying to find a way through. He has a few kind of half-hearted attempts. He locks up one time into turn one. I think that spooks him a bit because he thinks he's got the move done and then he realises at the last minute he hasn't and Trulli's just going to take the apex. So I don't think Trulli did anything wrong and I don't think there was really much going on that was different to what Montoya later did when he was racing Schumacher. I think Schumacher was just more awake later on in the race and therefore um, didn't frighten himself so much.
2: I think his main gripe was just that Trilly didn't jump out of the way, um, which, yeah, was fine fine with me. Trilly's race didn't last long, though, as he soon spun into the wall exiting Turn 2. Um, we got a lot of comments about this one, actually, in the, in the listeners' memories. Lots of people remembering Trilly, binning it. It was uh, suspected to be down to oil on the track, and there was a lot of that from Turn 1 to Turn 3, as all the the destroyed cars that didn't stop on track immediately in the crash did try to limp on so maybe there was oil before the next restart after Trulli's crash race leader Coulthard went off at the penultimate corner which he said was caused by his car going into neutral due to a gearbox issue that would soon put him out of the race entirely I remember being really annoyed at DC for that before I knew it was a car problem I thought he just choked um That put Schumacher in the lead, but he was then passed at Turn 1 on the restart by Montoya's Williams. Montoya, as Ben mentioned, put up a robust defence that was every bit as aggressive as Trulli's, but it only lasted six laps before Schumacher managed to kind of dupe him into defending into Turn 1 and then passed him on the exit. Schumacher said this was a nice battle with Montoya, and Montoya said he thought it was going to be a close fight, but then when the Ferrari got temperature into its Bridgestone tyres, it quickly became apparent it was game over. Ed, we've mentioned there that Montoya got his elbows out, as he always did with Schumacher. Was, was there anything else he could have done here? Or as Montoya mentioned, was he, was he doomed once the Bridgestone tyres came alive on the Ferrari? Yeah, I don't really think he could have done much more. He'd done
1: a great job to get ahead in the first place. That was a really good pass, grabbing the uh, the wheel under braking as well. So he placed the car where it needed to be. Maybe on the lap he was passed, he could have slightly compromised his entry to turn one and two fractionally less. So he wasn't so compromised on exit. But he'd done a great job to stay ahead on the previous lap, to be honest. When you're watching him going through there, you think, oh, he's going to be vulnerable. But... Yeah, he was on borrowed time, frankly. All he could have done was extract a bunch more pace from the car, which, I don't know, maybe there was untapped performance in it, but Montoya was pretty quick, so I'd be very, very surprised. I think he was fighting a losing battle on that one.
2: Yep, and the rest of the race was a losing battle for him as well because Schumacher cruised to a dominant victory. Montoya took second and Kimi Raikkonen came from the back of the field, or the back of the depleted field after the first corner incident to take third on his debut for McLaren. Schumacher and Ferrari team boss jean Todd said they had not expected to be able to win with the old car. And Todd said it took the pressure off Ferrari to hurry the 2002 car into service. Um, I'm going to go back and mention something Williams' Patrick Head said before the weekend. When he was talking about Ferrari bringing its old car, he said, it wouldn't be too good for us if we get beaten with our 2002 car by Ferrari's 2001 car. That's obviously what happened, Ben. So was this actually the first sign of how f- dominant Ferrari was going to be in 2002? We hadn't even seen that year's car yet.
3: Yeah, it's ominous. Um, I'm not sure it's such a sign of how dominant they were going to be. It's interesting that Todd said the result in Melbourne took the pressure off because obviously they got their asses handed to them at the next race in Malaysia and then they go to Brazil and suddenly the car is... Uh, is bought on stream so i don't think they were they were too relaxed and also they'd scored way more points than michael said he was aiming for while they waited for the new new car to come on stream so i think they were a bit worried even though they they did really well in australia and better than expected i don't think they wanted to be hanging around with the 2001 car too long um i think where Melbourne does give you an indication of how far Ferrari ahead other than the fact that they feel they can bring that car and still do okay it's just the operational slickness and the cleverness which with which they execute the weekend you know running uh bigger wing angles than their rivals making the car quick over a lap um you know reading the conditions really well you know that battle with Montoya is quite interesting because you can see that once the tyres come up, on what is a really cold day, everyone's struggling a bit. Schumacher just has way more grip than Montoya. And by rights, that Williams probably should be beating the older Ferrari, but the way Ferrari were running the car, and obviously combined with the driver as good as Schumacher, I think they were, they were compensating really well and getting the absolute maximum out of that package. But that said, I do think that they were, they were quite keen to get the O2 car on stream because it was going to bring them so much more instant performance as well as developmental avenue.
1: I can imagine there are a few rivals deluding themselves though into thinking that the real 2002 car was so troubled that they might have a McLaren mp four eighteen type situation. They wouldn't have been referencing that at the time because that was in the future, but it was probably that little thing in the back of their mind that they think, well, if the 2002 car's not better than this, we've got a chance. But yeah, if anyone wants to have a look at the results that the <laughs> 2002 achieved, they will, uh, they will see that was not the case.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's a good point that Ben mentions as well. I think temperatures and tyres um, played played a part in those first two races. The, the Michelins clearly weren't happy in Australia. Uh, but let's finish the episode then with the home hero as Mark Webber finished in the points for Minardi on his F1 debut uh, at his home Grand Prix. It doesn't get much better than that. Webber ...had avoided all the trouble at the start, and as more cars dropped out, he worked his way into the points. Then in the closing stages, he was fifth, but being caught by Mika Sarlo, who was in Toyota's first race in F1. Weber said in his book that before the start of the race, uh, team boss Paul Stoddart had told him, Just bring it home. And then Weber spent the whole race nursing the car as it was sending me all sorts of distress signals to say it was going to let me down. But as Sarlo closed up in the closing stages, Stoddart then came on the radio to say to Weber, under no circumstances, let him past. Ed, given that uh, even if Sarlo got past Weber, Minardi is still in the points um, with that sixth place. Were you surprised that Stoddart was seemingly willing to risk it all to hang on to fifth place?
1: My gut reaction to that was yes, because getting the point would be essential. That's hugely valuable. Why would you risk it? But then I thought a little bit more about the race situation, because you had Weber, Salo, then there was Alex Young in the other Minardi behind. And Pedro de la Rosa, I think, was still around miles, many laps down. So let's say Weber and Salo collided. Young was still there. And so they just still got the same results. So you might have thought, well, if there's a collision, wouldn't be the worst thing in the world necessarily. Plus there was what was at stake, because actually beating Toyota there was what gave Minardi, I think, ninth in the championship rather than tenth. They beat Toyota in the Constructors' championship on countback to, <laughs> to best result. So I may be giving him too much credit here for weighing all of this up, but I can see why it makes more sense than you initially think to have to have done this he may also have just got massively carried away (laughs) equally so i don't know it's how you want to how you want to slice and dice it but actually yeah the landscape of that situation means they had a bit of insurance so it wasn't completely absurd but you might want to be more emphatic about it and say yeah don't let him pass but if you do collide with him make sure you take them all out i do know of a situation where and where a driver in more recent times, was given a message that they knew very much meant if you have a collision, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world while trying to pass someone. It wasn't explicitly said, but it did lead to a collision that had championship implications. So sometimes there are these uh, these messages that go that, uh, that have that attached to them. Interesting.
2: 20 years from now, we'll find out what that message was. I, I see your logic. I like the idea, actually, of basically trying to convey to Webber... Um, it's fine if you have a shunt because then Jung comes fifth instead. <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, you had two shots at coming fifth if you're Minardi. So why would you want to end up sixth? Uh, Salo had taken 20 seconds out of Weber in 10 laps to catch up to him. And then the battle was on for the final six laps of the race. But Weber said he felt like Christmas had come early. The first time the Toyota was behind him, up behind him on the start finish straight, and it didn't really make up any ground on him. Weber said in his book that that made him realize he had a chance of holding on. Uh, he said uh, Mika was all over me round the back of the circuit. There were a few places where I would stay out of the throttle to let him close up and give him more disturbed air behind my car. The pressure was building. We were getting deeper and deeper into the race and I knew he was going to get more and more aggressive, which meant I was going to have to be more and more aggressive in blocking him. The decisive moment came two laps from the end when Sarlo attacked on the outside into turn three and spun on oil that Weber said had been there all race. Weber said he then got confused uh, when he looked in his mirror and couldn't see Sarlo anymore until his engineer shouted to him that the Toyota had gone off. Then Mark got confused again because the crowd were reacting like it was the last lap when he came around the final corner, but there was no checkered flag. And he also didn't know how long was left in the race because he knew he'd been lapped by Schumacher and he wasn't entirely certain of the race distance for him. He said when he crossed the line and there was a checkered flag, it was the most unbelievable moment of his life and the tears started flowing immediately after the race at the time he called it the fairy tale. And Stoddart said Minardi had already achieved all of its goals for the season by scoring those two points. So maybe that explains why Stoddart was so insistent on making sure it was a fifth place. Ben, how great was this? And... In some ways, was it made better by the fact that Webber did have to fight for it at the end? You know, he didn't come fifth in a five-car race.
3: No, he came fifth in what an eight-car race,
2: seven-car race. <laughs> race. Yeah,
3: so it's like, yeah. slightly better than that. Uh, and it was a great story. Menardi's first point since first points since 1999. Um, you know, enlivening the end of that race once you knew Michael Schumacher had it in the bag. So something to keep you watching till the end. Uh, I think Webber's right about the oil. I suspect that was Buttons, Benetton, that put that down, um, which also probably took out his teammate ultimately because there's the shot of his uh, his smashed Benetton going across the grass at turn run after that massive shunt and the radiator's in a terrible state and the car's briefly on fire. So that yeah. that suggests to me that he's done point oil that was never cleaned up. Um, but that incident saved Weber because Salo was so much quicker and the, the Minardi looked awful to drive as well when when you mentioned earlier Weber was talking about the car sending him distress signals presumably he's talking about those little noises that make you think it's about to blow up or or break down but just the lack of traction on that car I mean he could have had multiple shunts at any moment before Salo goes off so on the one hand I think he was quite fortunate because I think that Toyota should have beaten him and therefore Toyota should have beaten Menardi in the constructors championship as poor as Toyota to were in that season that first season I think Weber deserves a lot of credit for just hanging on to that terrible car and getting it to the end
1: and I think it's worth adding despite what I said about the fact that he could risk an incident there was nothing in what he was doing and the way he was driving that was problematic or risky he just did the job really really well so he didn't
2: do anything outrageous because of the situation just a fairly won position. Yeah, and also, even if Paul Stoddart was thinking it's okay, Alex Young's behind. Mark Webber's an Australian making his debut in Australian Grand Prix. He he was hardly going to drive in a way that would be willing to sacrifice himself. So Alex Young gets all the glory. Um, But uh, I certainly don't think Alex Young would have ended up on the podium after the race. Uh, And despite only finishing fifth, Webber was taken up there after the ceremony for the top three drivers. And this was the idea of race promoter Ron Walker to give the home fans a chance to celebrate with him. Uh, and I, I think we had some some memories from fans who were there saying it was, you know, they, they burst onto the track and were desperate to get a glimpse of Webber. So it went down really well with the crowd. Uh, the images of Webber and Stoddart, both proud Aussies, up there with an Australian flag, that, that's iconic now um, two decades later. although Weber said he was uncomfortable uh, with going up there uh, because he felt that the only people entitled to stand on a podium were the top three finishers and in his words not some local bloke who was fifth. Um, Ed, <laughs> do, do you think Weber was was right to feel that way about this this kind of this show for the fans that was put on?
1: Yeah, I think it was a nice moment for the fans and people watching on TV etc but I completely get why it would feel weird for him and obviously Weber he was a proper driver he'd won a lot of races at a lot of levels F3000, FIGTs etc so you would feel like an imposter being on the podium for that but that discomfort overall was probably a price worth paying because it helped the team obviously good for his profile etc so beneficial overall and he did get on the podium 42 times on merit in his career so that's fine i think he also said that his back was killing him and he was quite keen to getting that scene too so i think as well as being metaphorically uncomfortable if you want to put it that way he was literally uncomfortable as well but the fact it's still talked about and remembered by people means that i think actually although it was a bit stupid because you don't throw people on the podium unless they're in the top three it was a
3: nice moment and there were reasons for it so we'll let this one pass yeah, I'm not buying the nice moment, and there are reasons for it. Rationale, I get it, I get it, and I get that it played well, but it's a nonsense to me. I think Webber absolutely is right to feel the way he did. Um, it's it's not even imposter syndrome; it's actually being an imposter. There was <laughs> there wasn't there wasn't, a, there wasn't a separate class for Mark Webber in this Grand Prix. He wasn't the Jonathan Palmer of the '80s, winning you know the normally aspirated Formula One. Let's stick him on the podium. The track invasion is great. You know, Aussie fans, they're all bearded. up. Yeah, they love it. Their home heroes had a great result on his debut. Invade the track. Weber can climb the pit wall and like yell and scream with them and they can have their own celebration. He shouldn't be on the podium. That was a step too far, in my opinion. But, you know, he, as Ed said, he made it onto the podium legitimately. So um,
2: maybe he would have felt differently had he never done so. Well, he never did it in Australia, did he? <laughs> um, so he, he he took your advice, Ben. He he, he realised that you felt he should never have been up there and made sure he yeah, was never good. up there again. He paid for it. He, he paid said, for it. He, yeah. I think he said in his book that he used up too much of his home luck on the first attempt. Um, but let's... I just want to have a final word on Sarlo's role in all of this. So he recovered from that spin to finish sixth and claim a point for Toyota... On its F1 debut, Uh, the team made a big fuss about that result, probably to distract from the fact that they'd been beaten by Minardi. Team boss Ove Anderson said uh, his heart had to be kick-started after Salo spun. but He said it was incredible and unexpected to score a point first time out. Toyota had gone into this weekend playing down expectations big time. They were talking about just hoping to qualify for the race. And Anderson was very honest afterwards, saying that he was worried the result could cause problems with his bosses in Japan who would now expect results like this all the time. And he said, as long as we realise that this is an incredibly lucky result, then it's okay. Sarlo said a point was all he wanted from the race as reward for all the people that had been working on the project for three years without going racing. He said, even though he had scored points before in his career, this point was probably the most important. Ben, help me... If, if there is nonsense to see through here, is this a good result for Toto on its debut or is all this back patting just distracting from the fact that they failed to beat a Minardi and Salo had quite a rubbish spin?
3: Yeah, I think you nailed it there. Uh, it was a rubbish spin. It was, it was good in the overall sense of, yes, you want to score points on your debut as a new team, that's brilliant. But he shouldn't be finishing behind that Minardi given where he qualified given where Eddie Irvine finished in the Jaguar and they were terrible going into 2002. Yes, they were more experienced in terms of their time on the actual grid, but they were in, a, they were a shambles going into that season. And, yeah, the car was woeful. Yeah, and the Toyota's nowhere near beating them. Uh, And it's not like Toto have come in at the last minute. Oh, hey, we're rocking up in Melbourne and away we go. You know, as Salo says. They're not Phoenix, are they? No, they're not Phoenix. They're certainly not rising from the ashes of anything. They're (laughs) three years of preparation, you know, qualified decently. Just a poor race, really, with a a nice story to tell the Japanese at the end. Uh, And Salo, I bet he was grateful because it saved him from a massive bollocking.
1: Yeah, I... I'm fine with them being happy for scoring a point on debut, but with all those caveats. The one thing that does occur to me is I always found Toyota a bit strange because... I remember the first Grand Prix I covered full-time was France 2008 when Jarno Trulli got on the podium. It was their first podium of the season. They have not been on the podium for a while. But they had been on the podium before a number of times. And I thought, well, you are this massive team spending a lot of money and you're celebrating like you've won. And (laughs) I wonder if there was always this thing with Toyota. They almost overreacted to (laughs) to results. I guess I'll let them have this one. But it's perhaps the start of a bit of a trend because, yeah, they should be worried about that. And Salo certainly should be kicking himself for not beating Weber, and I'm sure he was, because Salo was a good driver, but that was a really silly mistake to make, frankly, because that was a pretty easy position to gain. But yeah, there's just something about Toyota in F1, it's not a particularly controversial thing to say that wasn't quite right, and I just... I think there are echoes of that, always overreacting to things. You kind of think, there comes a point where you've got to win a race rather than being very excited about just being on the podium, which of course they never did. So perhaps they never quite got the point of that. But yeah, it just made me think of that.
2: Yeah, so yet another way that Australia 2002 set the scene for what was to come. Uh, we'll leave it there for this episode then. And that's our final regular episode of Series 7 done. Thanks to Ben and to Ed for joining us for this one. We'll hear from both of you again before the series is over, as there are two more episodes to come. As usual, we'll be taking your questions about the V10 era, and we'll also have another top 10 debate, as the first one of those proved so popular in our last series. But for now, we're going to keep the topic we've chosen for that a secret for a little bit longer.
1: The Athletic.